Well, Esther, uh, historically, this uh, has been a bit of a problematic book. Uh, if you've ever had someone ask you what book you'd take to a desert island, have, have you had someone say that? You know, if you could take one book from the Bible onto a desert island, which one would that be? Well, for some of our reformers, it certainly wouldn't have been Esther. Uh, in fact, Martin Luther, one of our uh, great Protestant reformers, he may have taken it, but only to start a fire with it to keep himself warm at night. You see, he, uh, like some of the others, including Calvin, who never preached on this book, they saw a number of problems with Esther. Uh, the first big problem is that there's no mention of God anywhere in the book of Esther. Uh, there's no references to his name. If, if you have your Old Testament, you see the word Lord in all capitals. That's where they use the term Yahweh, the name of God. That doesn't appear in the book. Uh, in fact, there's no explicit mention of prayer anywhere in the book or of the temple. And the setting of the book is entirely outside of Jerusalem, the holy city. Uh, there's not even a mention of the nation of Israel in this book. So God's people, if you follow through carefully, they're only referred to in Esther as the Jews. So by every available metric, this really is an outlier in our Bibles. It really is a strange book uh, to be sitting in there. The second problem is that many of the actions that we see Esther perform uh, and Mordecai and even the Jews later on, uh, they're morally not fantastic. Uh, They're quite questionable at best uh, and sinful at worst. And we'll see what I mean by this in some of the stuff that comes later. So there's no mention of God and there's kind of moral ethical questions that kind of linger around in the background. Yet despite these things, I want to argue that contrary to what some of our reformers thought, uh, Esther is an incredibly valuable book in our Bible. Uh, It's not one to pass over. Uh, And many of these problems that we look at, they can be answered uh, if we look at the context of where Esther sits in the Bible. So the absence of any references to God, for example, well, they have a strong rhetorical purpose in the narrative. So if we consider, once again, Reich kind of gave us an overview of this, but the context of this story, it takes place post-exile, outside of Jerusalem, right, away from the holy temple, the, the, the place where God dwelled. And when we consider the pain and the suffering of exile as well, where people were asking deep questions about, where is God? Is he still here? Does God still love us? What's happened to his covenantal love? Have we been forgotten? Have we been abandoned? And we begin to see that the absence of any mention of God's name in this book uh, plays this function of going, well, where is God now, now that we're out here? In fact, Esther, it kind of feels like a church today in some respects, in the sense that there, there are no big fancy dreams like you see in Daniel. There's, there's no visions, there's no charismatic leaders, there's no prophets, uh, there's not even any explicit God talk, in inverted commas. And so to help set the tone of what we're looking at, we need to really realise this is post-exile. And we as the reader then are meant to ask the question, along with everyone else, where is God? Now, Esther, it's also a funny book. And when I say funny, I mean laugh out loud funny. Uh, there is a lot of comic timing of events that happen, particularly in next week's passage. Uh, a lot of weird misunderstandings that could only be the providence of God. So it is intended to be a little bit of a comedy at points as well. Uh, it's a dramatic story. It's a story that is full of tension 
as God delivers his people out of the jaws of annihilation. Right? This is a blockbuster film as well. And it's also a historical narrative where God works in the background of human history, in the shadows, sometimes invisible to us, but always at work. And so with this little teaser, this is more my, my encouragement to you to read it in your own time. Uh, it doesn't take long. It could take you half an hour to an hour perhaps to read all 10 chapters. Uh, but have a look at it yourself as we go through it over the next couple of weeks because I think you'll pick up on a lot of the stuff uh, that I bring up here. So with some of these tent pegs laid and this encouragement uh, to your own personal reading, uh, let's get into what's going on in the text. And that was point one, so we're going to go on to point two now. Uh, point two, trouble in Persian paradise leads to Esther's rise. Now our story, it begins with a grand scene. So we have the king of Persia, uh, this guy King Xerxes. Uh, some of you with different translations of the Bible, it might say King Ahasuerus uh, because of a translation difference. Those two kings, Xerxes, Ahasuerus, they're the same person. He hasn't got a split personality, at least from what I can tell in the text Um, But I'll be using Xerxes because that's what the Bible reading had today, and it's also much, much easier to pronounce. This king, uh, King Xerxes, the first thing we learn about him, uh, the first thing the author wants us to know is how great this guy is. Uh, The first verse, it launches off by telling us that he is the king of 127 provinces in Persia, from India to Ethiopia. Wow, that's a great king. That is a strong king. It almost implies he's a powerful king. And to make sure just how great he was, to make sure everyone knew this, he held an amazing banquet for a bunch of important people that lasted 180 days. That's half a year of partying. And if that wasn't enough, uh, in the city of Susa, if you saw the map uh, early on, that's where he's stationed. He held another massive party there that lasted seven days And in this hometown, everyone was invited, both great and small. Uh, Everyone, including uh, perhaps slaves and even their pet dogs. Well, I'm not sure about that one. You might need to fact check that. The point is this guy knew how to throw a massive party. And he knew how to decorate for one as well. If you have a look at verse 6 as well, have a look at this. This describes the background of where these people were eating and drinking. It says, The gardens had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material, to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver. That's my favourite. I can't imagine how comfortable these couches were, but, I mean, the the couches are gold and silver, right? That's amazing. Wow. They they were sitting on mosaic pavement, uh, on porphyry of marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. This was a fancy, fancy place to be. Now, after a bit of uh, drinking, a bit of partying, the wine running free in this paradise, Xerxes decides that showing off his kingdom wasn't quite enough. So he had this great idea. He decided to call in his wife, Vashti, to the front in order to, in verse 11, display her beauty to the people and her nobles. Now, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what's being implied here. Uh, Perhaps she was to appear... Uh, wearing nothing but her crown. Uh, At any rate, I think what's implied here is some kind of demeaning act which shows off her in all of her glory. 
But the kind of strange thing that arises from this request uh, that we're almost meant to laugh at is we have this king here who is this amazing ruler, ruler of 127 provinces, and yet he has little to no power, ironically, over his household, over his wife. Because Vashti, she refuses to come. And Xerxes, well, he's left standing there looking like a bit of a buffoon at this point. Now, his nobles, uh, these are the people that advise him, they tell him uh, what to do at certain points. Uh, They raise fears that that this rebellion by Vashti, it'll lead to some kind of revolt. They suspect that women all over Persia will hear about this act of defiance and rebel against their own husbands as a result. And so they suggest in verses 19 to 20, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree. And let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media. As if this situation wasn't embarrassing enough, his nobles convince him to elevate this domestic dispute into a crisis of his own authority. Let, Let it be written into the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of the king. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Now Vashti, at this point, she's royally kicked off her throne. Uh, There was a vacancy, naturally, that needed filling. Uh, This vacancy was kind of important, particularly for this king, uh, because he deeply admired his beautiful women. Again, uh, the nobles step in with another great idea, just like the first one. Uh, They suggest that he run a beauty pageant, uh, Miss Persia, and they want to find this new queen through this beauty pageant. And so as chapter 2 unfolds, a bunch of beautiful women in the land are all gathered up for the king, and they are given the beauty treatment of a lifetime. Uh, I'm not going to read it out here, but read in chapter 2, verse 12 onwards, there's a lot described in there about what they went through. And each of these women then is given a turn with the king. And one of these women that was swept up into this beauty pageant was a Jewish woman called Esther. And in 2.7, one of the first things we learn about Esther, which tells you a lot about what's going on here, is that she had a lovely figure and was beautiful. That's kind of the most important part the author seems to think. Now, it doesn't take a genius to put together what's going to happen. You have a lustful king and you have this beautiful woman. But here in the text, this is where things take a slight turn because we're also introduced to this guy named Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai, he is the cousin of Esther, and he takes Esther under his wing because we learn that Esther has no mother and father in 2 verse 7. And so this cousin, uh, a bit older than her, Uh, decides to take her under her wing and look after her the way a father would. And before she's whisked off to the beauty pageant, Mordecai, he drops a quick line of wisdom her way. He advises her to hide her Jewish heritage. And we see in verse 10 that she does do this. She's faithful to this request. And for good measure, we're reminded again that she did this in verse 20. Uh, It seems a little bit strange, a bit odd. Not sure why he would request this, but... At any rate, the story moves on. We see she pleases the king and is crowned queen in place of Vashti. 
Now, before chapter 2 comes to a close, uh, they insert another incident, uh, a curious one, where Mordecai, while sitting at the gate, he overhears a plot to kill King Xerxes. And he passes this information on to Queen Esther, which ends up saving the king's life. Uh, We're told that all this is recorded in verse 23 in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. Now, that little thing there saying it's being recorded down in the king's chronicles, essentially, uh, this comes up later in Esther. So that's a little bit of information to tuck away for next week, uh, the kind of thing to keep in the back of your minds as we move on. So we're going to go to point three. Trouble in Persian paradise leads to Esther's rise, but an enemy threatens genocide to God's people. Now, so far in the story, uh, things have been going swimmingly for the people of God. Uh, Yes, there are moral questions that might arise, uh, questions about how Esther became queen, uh, whether she should be the queen of a pagan nation as a conservative Jewish woman, uh, whether, generally speaking, she should have done any of the things she did to be in that position. But generally speaking in the story, everything seems to be going okay at this point. But then we get to chapters 3 and 4, and here we're introduced to another man, another character called Haman. And this guy is the bad guy of the story. Dun, dun, dun. Right? Haman, chapter 3, verse 1. He is described as an Agagite. Now, there's a lot of details in this story, and this might seem like one of those ones that you'd sweep over, but this is actually a little bit important. Uh, If you recall earlier, Mordecai is also introduced uh, as the son of Kish. Now, if you remember in your Bibles, the the other big famous son of Kish was Israel's first king, King Saul. And back in 1 Samuel 15, King Saul, the son of Kish, is most famous for all the wrong reasons. You see, he is given an order to destroy and annihilate the Amalekites, uh, including the king. And he fails to do this. And the king of the Amalekites happens to have the name King Agag. Now, in the history between uh, Israel and the Amalekites, this goes way, way, way back. We don't have time to look at it here. Uh, So I've got a little chart here that might help with a few Bible references to kind of connect the dots. But basically, all you need to know is that Haman and Mordecai in this story, they represent mortal enemies. You're God's people and God's enemy. Now, in the beginning of chapter 3, uh, we see this uh, enmity arise in what is perhaps one of the most inoffensive ways. So Haman, he receives a promotion. He becomes effectively the prime minister of, of Persia. And he demands, along with the king, that everyone bows down to him and pay him homage. Seems like a pretty reasonable request. Uh, everybody does this uh, except one man, this man Mordecai. Now, if you've ever been in a situation and you've thought, wow, that escalated quickly, uh, it has nothing on this. Uh, what happens here in Esther? Because this simple act of defiance by Mordecai, refusing to bow down, uh, is responded to with threats of genocide by Haman. And so after finding out that Mordecai is a Jew, Haman plots to kill all the Jews. That escalated quickly. So Haman runs off, uh, and to determine the exact date that he's going to carry out his evil master plan, 
Uh, he pulls a leaf out of the Dungeons and Dragons handbook. Uh, he grabs a dice and he rolls it. This dice is called a purr, uh, which is another thing to kind of set in your memory banks. You don't need to remember it, but just put it aside and remember that. Um, once he has this date set by the dice, uh, he approaches the king with his massive evil master plan uh, and a huge bribe to carry out this thing. Now, for whatever reason, uh, the king, he agrees to this plan. And the next thing he does is hand over his signet ring in 310. Now, this signet ring, this is basically like handing over mum and dad's credit card. You see, Xerxes is basically given the authority to Haman to do whatever he wants, to write any edict in the name of the king. And so here's the bottom line, right? We have Persian laws that can't be repealed. And we see this in chapter 119 with that silly edict with Vashti. So these laws can't be undone, they can't be changed. They're in there permanently. And on the other hand, we have this man who wants to obliterate all the Jews to wipe them off the face of the earth and is suddenly given the ring of destiny, this thing that the power to make any law in Persia and put it into effect. It's not hard to read the tea leaves on this one. Uh, There's a lot of bad stuff that is about to happen. And so fittingly, in 310, Haman is now given the title, The Enemy of the Jews. Now, in chapter 4, news of this decree, it spreads uh, that all the Jews, uh, if you've heard in today's reading, men, women, and children are all to be annihilated from the date that Haman had rolled on this dice. And Mordecai hears about this, and he is rightly devastated. Now, for some reason, the queen doesn't hear of this. Uh, Perhaps she's protected in the palace one way or another. But Mordecai gets her ear, he hands her a copy of the decree and shows what's going on. And the queen suddenly realises she is in a very difficult position here. Because like putting toast in the freezer and expecting it to turn back into bread, these laws, once they're in effect, they can't be undone. And even if they could, even if it was possible to even raise this subject with the king, Esther has to be summoned by him. Uh, Any unwelcome approaches to the king in in Persian law can spell your own death. And Esther reminds Mordecai of this reality, adding that she hasn't been summoned in more than a month in 411. So she has no idea when she's going to get the next opportunity to even raise this with the king. Now Mordecai, well, he looks at this situation and he reminds Esther of who she is and that she won't escape the consequences of this royal decree, no matter who she thinks she is. But this is also where Mordecai does something absolutely incredible. In the story, he places his trust in God's hands without explicitly saying so. So in 4.14, Mordecai says to Esther, if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance from the Jews will come from another place. This is incredibly trusting, despite what all the odds of the situation look like. And he goes on, he says, But who knows that that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? He's reading the situation. He's seeing the hand of God at work and going, Perhaps this is why you have become queen. 
And with these words, Esther plucks up the courage to do what Mordecai had proposed, uh, saying, if I perish, I perish. And this is where we're going to go to our final point, that God is always at work. So in this part of Esther, we're kind of left on a cliffhanger till next week. Uh, But we see Mordecai uh, has a trust in his God. He has a trust that his God is a God who delivers his people, even when it seems at odds with all the reality happening at ground zero. Even when it seems as though God has forgotten his people or has left his people hung out to dry, he can trust God. Uh, If you remember back to the beginning of this talk, Esther, its setting is in post-exile. So there aren't any miracles in this book. Uh, There's no dreams, visions, leaders, charismatic prophets. Um, Yet, as we'll see in the next two weeks, the absence of the miraculous doesn't mean the absence of God. It's a very good thing to remember for today, even. Uh, Despite God being in the shadows of this narrative here in Esther, he is indeed hard at work. And we'll get to some of the more obvious evidence of this in next week's talk on Esther chapters 5 to 7. Uh, but as things stand, uh, so far in Esther, it really does seem as though God has forgotten them, that he is so far off from them. His people have been handed over for utter destruction, and humanly speaking, there really is no way out of this one. Now, we might not be in this exact Same situation. Uh, We don't have the government uh, overtly trying to seek to violently wipe us off the face of the earth, and praise God for that. But we do live in a world where occasionally God does feel very distant from us. Perhaps you're feeling that now. We live in a world where people receive diagnoses which threaten their lives, Uh, where people get pinged by cars and the car just runs off where cars get written off by some crazy driver who goes off on another spree hitting other cars. All these things have happened just this week. We live in a world where life is full of anxiety for some people, full of depression for others, full of loneliness, joblessness and stress. And for many of us, it leaves us thinking, surely if God were here, things would be different. If God were here, he'd put an end to all of this. Well, it's hard to read into situations like this and and for me to tell you exactly what's happening in your life. I can't give you an oracle from God that says, oh, he's doing this for this exact reason, to sharpen you up in this area or whatever it is. And so you are left in some ways going, well, where is God? Uh, The 20th century left... Uh, bloody world wars where people were crying out, where is God? And I'm sure Christians in the Ukraine and in Russia and the rest of the world at the moment are asking all these same questions. Where is God? And the Bible doesn't give us an exact answer to any of these specific problems, but it does give us one major sign which tells us without a doubt, without a shadow of any doubt, that God absolutely cares for us. And it's found in the cross of Jesus. Yes, our lives, they are full of problem and pain and the world around us gives us more reason to question what on earth is happening. But the one thing we can't say 
is that God doesn't care. Because despite the evil and brokenness that seems to permeate all of creation and the brokenness that that we feel in our lives, uh, broken promises, perhaps broken relationships, broken bodies, broken minds, broken hearts, despite all of these things forcing us into that corner to question where is God, we know that God himself showed his plan through Jesus to demonstrate his immense love and kindness to us. And I'll give us one short example from Romans 5. Paul writes, You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, despite what things might feel like, when your heart starts to question, where is God in my suffering? Where is God in my situation? Where is God when I need him most? Let me tell you where he was. He was dying on the cross to pay for your sin. So I think with that, now's probably a good time to finish up and pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for what we have read in your holy word. Uh, we thank you that uh, Esther can remind us that you are always at work in the world, even when, you f- when we feel like uh, you're a million miles from our situation. Uh, but Lord, we thank you for the, the blessing it is uh, to live, not post-exile, but in the days of the new covenant where we see that you cared about us so much that while we were still sinners, you died for us anyway. Lord, help us to cling to this truth through the times that we feel dry, the times that we feel empty, and the times that we feel distant from you. Revive us and help us to enjoy you once again. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.